0: Rick Rule is a favorite in the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet up with Rick and get a master class from the master himself, you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida, July 23rd to the 27th. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members, and uranium pros. Just head over to realvision.com forward slash Rick. What's up, everybody? It's Ash Bennington. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Joining me today is Kane Warwick, founder of Synthetics. Kane, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Ash. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, wow, it's great to have you here. Kane, you're a guy who's had an extremely interesting life. Talk about how you got into the digital asset slash crypto slash
1: DeFi space. Um, yeah, so I, I came from a retail slash payments background. Um, which I, I guess made me interested in uh, crypto as a payment method, right? So, um, you know, the first time I I kind of got my head around Bitcoin as an alternative uh, to like the fiat payment rails, um, it seemed pretty interesting. Um, and then uh, later on, I developed a, a payment gateway that allowed people to put cash into digital wallets. Um, and one of the early use cases was for um, crypto purchases because, you know, in Australia, banks were uh, make it very difficult for people to to buy crypto um, blocking transactions, that sort of thing. And so cash was kind of the the optimal way to get into crypto. Um, so that was back in like 2014 um, that, that we launched that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So t- let's talk a little bit about what you were thinking about when you started up Synthetics. What was the problem you were looking to solve?
1: It was the same problem, really. It was trying to create a stable coin. Um, so trying to create a, a token that tracked a dollar. That would allow people to make purchases, um, you know, to to uh, buy things, sell things, um, you know, the same way that they would with uh, a Visa or Mastercard or Amex. Um, that evolved um, from Haven, which was the original project, this original stablecoin project, um, uh, into Synthetics, which became a derivatives protocol. So, you know, the so initial- it was
0: it was it was Blue Shift, then Haven, then Synthetics. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so BlueShift was a payment gateway. Um, I launched Haven as a, a separate project um, while I was running BlueShift. Um, you know, I saw this kind of gap in the market, the stablecoin gap, and I, I thought it'd be something that would be interesting to work on. Um, and then Haven uh, evolved into synthetics once uh, things like USDC and TrueUSD launched. You know, these kind of semi-regulated stablecoins. Um, you know, back in the day, it was only Tether, um, and you know, people were very concerned about. Uh, tether and its backing, and you know they still are, but they were really concerned back in you know 2015, 2016, um, and so um, you know the the idea was to create a decentralized version of that that was like provably secured and safe.
0: So tell us a little bit about the functionality of synthetics today.
1: Yeah, so you know initially it was just a, a dollar um, a, as a token on blockchain, um, and then it evolved into gold. Silver, Bitcoin, um, you know, various other um, assets that were sort of uh, tokenized, essentially. So you know, you could you could trade Bitcoin on Ethereum. Um, and back when we first launched that, there weren't really, there weren't many options um, to do that. There was uh, you know no wrapped Bitcoin yet. Um, so you know, being able to trade Bitcoin on Ethereum uh, oh. was was pretty novel. Um, today we have uh, you know. 40, 50 different assets. So, um, you know, different instruments, so spot instruments, derivatives, um, perpetual, um, uh, contracts, um, and we've got a whole bunch of different markets as well. So, you know, mainly crypto assets, but also some commodities and foreign, uh, currencies. So, you know, Euro, GBP, et cetera.
0: All right. So let's talk a little bit about this. I think in the wake of the Terra Luna collapse, people are always curious about what the mechanism is for maintaining those pegs. Talk a little bit about how that
1: happens. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of variations on uh, stable coin designs, but, um, you know, at their core, um, you have sort of collateralized stable coins. So there's there's something that uh, the, the token is driving its value from. Um, and then you've got uh, algorithmic stable coins, um, where it's just a set of rules that, you know, ideally keep the thing stable. Um, and, you know, with Terra Luna, the rules um, kind of kept it stable until they didn't. And once uh, once the value uh, fell below you know some kind of critical threshold, the mechanism essentially printed more tokens to try and prop it up, right? Um, which created this death spiral. Um, with synthetics, uh, there, there's a similar issue. You know, it kind of looks a little bit similar. Um, the difference is that uh, the um, the collateral that backs uh, the the tokens in the synthetics ecosystem um, is derived from the fees. That are generated. Um, so you know we are generating about a million dollars a week in fees, um, and those fees are paid to token holders. So the synthetics token, the SNX token, um, sort of has this like uh, you know intrinsic value that's coming from the cash flow that the network is generating, um, and that's what you know makes it a, a better form of collateral. Um, but ultimately, the the tokens are sort of freely floating tokens. They're they're not um, you know algorithmically pegged to the um, you know the the assets that they um, track they're they're pegged those assets by an oracle.
0: So so walk us through how that uh, how that pegging works uh, and how the cash flows from synthetics play into it.
1: Yeah, so in order to mint the stablecoin, so let's just talk about the U.S. dollar stablecoin SUSD. Um, in order to mint that, you need to lock S and X, um, and you can borrow against it. So one of the primary mechanisms we have is a very high uh, collateralization ratio. Um, so you can only borrow twenty percent of the value of your collateral in the stablecoin. Um, so that creates a fairly large buffer, right? You know, you need a, a significant drawdown in the collateral value for it to become insolvent. And then um, on a weekly basis, in order for you to uh, claim the rewards in the uh, in the system, so inflation um, predominantly, um, you need to have that collateralization ratio above five hundred percent. So each week, the users need to decide if the collateral value has dropped, do they repay some debt? Do they top up the collateral? And they kind of need to maintain their margin on a weekly basis. And so this, you know, kind of continuously rolls. And so um, on any given week, you know, even if the price has dropped by 10% or 20%, most people are inclined to repay that loan or to add collateral. Um, and, you know, the network tends to stay fairly well collateralized. You know, the, the collateral ratio sort of sits between four and 500% on, on you know, most of the time.
0: And that's because the act of walking away from the collateral based on the collateral uh, rate would actually generate a net loss for them if they were to walk away
1: because of how highly uh, collateralized it is. That's correct. Yeah. You're, you know, in most cases, you know, barring like some huge drawdown, you're going to be better off uh, paying down the debt and getting the collateral and then selling the collateral. So, so and we're going to talk about the, the risks of the, of a huge
0: drawdown because price instability seems to me like it's a, a risk of any type of stablecoin asset. Walk walk us through how this process works. For example, for U.S. dollar stable coins, like what would it what would it look
1: like uh, for someone who wants to come into the ecosystem? So uh, you can essentially just buy the stablecoin if that's all you're looking for. Um, you can buy the stable coin through AMMs. Um, you know, so you can go to Curve, for example, and trade USDC into SUSD, um, and you know you can you can get significant uh, size there. Um, you know, into the millions of dollars Um, and then you've got SUSD within the ecosystem. Once you have SUSD, you have the ability to convert that into other tokens that track different prices. So you could take that SUSD, you pay a transaction fee and you could convert it into synthetic Bitcoin. And now you've got an instrument that tracks the price of Bitcoin Um, or you could take that SUSD and you could use it to margin a perpetual contract. You know, so you go and take a 10x leverage Bitcoin long or short position. So
0: so how does it work with with Bitcoin on the long side and on the short side? Walk us through that. So you, I get it. You, you need to own SUSD in order to come into uh, the Bitcoin uh, synthetics contract. Talk a little bit about how that works and what the risks are.
1: Yeah. So, you know, traditional, I say traditional, right? They've been around for five years, but, you know, a perpetual contract that was uh, maybe a little bit longer that was invented by BitMEX um, or, you know, maybe invented is probably the wrong term. They kind of uh, Systematized it and and you know tweaked a little bit and and you know made it productionized, if you will, right? Uh, these perpetual contracts were designed to um, not require rolling over contracts, right? So you didn't have you know some future data contract. you could just right. hold this position and it just runs perpetually, right? never you never have to roll it never um, you know it's never uh, delivered, et cetera. Um, and the advantage is obviously pretty high there. The disadvantage is not having settlement means that the price, can kind of diverge, right? Um, you know, there's no reason for the spot price and this perpetual price to really stay together. And so that's where funding rates come in. Um, and so the way that funding rates are calculated in in a traditional perpetual product is the further the divergence from spot that the instrument is, um, the higher the funding rate, which is you know, kind of incentivizes, uh, you know, people to, to, you know, rebalance essentially and, and bring the price back into align line with the spot price. Um, so that works fairly well. Um, and you know it's it's worked for the traditional um, you know perp uh, protocols um, you know and sorry not protocols perp exchanges um, so you know bitmex et etc and you know Binance, all of these uh, these exchanges have listed these um, with synthetics we don't have that divergence because it works by an Oracle. Um, so you know the price of Bitcoin is always the price of Bitcoin um, on both both the spot and the perpetual product um, and what that means is the issue for us is that you can potentially have the market skew uh, diverge. And so you know in a very bullish environment, you could have 90 or 95% of people long and 5% of people short. And right. because, because it's an AMM, what that does is creates this like systemic risk um, within uh, within the network and and within the, the AMM pool. And so what we do is we have funding rates that basically Disincentivize longs, right? So you know the shorts would be paid, and they would be they would come in and collect that funding rate to take a short position, um, which then brings the skew back into alignment. Um, And so that's the case for all of these perpetual markets, and that's to reduce the risk to the debt pool, to the AMM pool.
0: And what about the converse uh, when you see the short positions? I assume I mean it's the same basic mechanism, but things can move down short side faster, a lot quicker than they can uh, move to the upside in the event of a catastrophic risk to it for any one of these uh, real world assets that you're tracking. How does that work? Uh, and how do those funding rate mechanisms begin to be, bring into balance of uh, the supply and demand dynamics?
1: Yeah, so there's there's a, uh, a secondary um, mechanism as well, which is um, the further a trade is going to bring the, the uh, market out of alignment, Um, the more uh, like uh, the price slippage is induced essentially, right? Um, And so you're getting a worse fill as you get further away from that, um, which creates a disincentive. And then obviously you got the funding rate on top of that to discourage, um, you know, long-term holding of that. Um, And so what we've seen empirically, I mean, probably the best most recent example um, is Ripple, um, you know, so XRP moved up in the space of, you know, uh, several hours, um, you know, the volatility increased significantly, it moved up 50%, then pulled back and then moved up 50% again. Um, and during that time, uh, the funding rate was uh, fairly effective and, and you know, this uh, sort of um, slippage mechanism, um, you know, directional slippage mechanism was fairly effective at keeping the market um, in alignment. And I think across, uh, you know, something like, um uh, Fifty million dollars worth of notional volume. There was uh, two hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, price impact in the AMM pool itself. Um, you know, so it was it was very tightly, uh, you know, um, uh, aligned between longs and shorts that entire time, despite that volatility. Yeah, it's like sixty to one. Uh, so
0: yeah. there are about twenty trading pairs right now. Is that right in terms of real world assets that you can trade on synthetics?
1: Yeah, there's uh, there's a range of um, perps and spot. Um, so I think it's it's over forty now um, uh, in just across the the perps and spot. Um, but um, you know that's growing every day. Um, and you know in an ideal world we'll have the top hundred assets, um, you know crypto assets plus you know some real world assets like you know forex and and commodities. Um, you know ideally when we launch the new version, Perps v3, um, we'll start scaling out those assets again. And, you know, the target is to have the top 100 assets.
0: So it's, it's, about, it's about 20 pairs and then Perps and, uh, and Spot
1: for each? Is that sort of... Yeah that's, yeah, that's correct. There's a few where there's Spot tokens, but not Perp tokens, and a few where there's Perps and no Spot. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not perfectly symmetrical. Now, are, is this something that users are able to do without being KYC'd? Yeah, so it's an AMM. Um, so it runs um, on the Optimism Network, which is a, a layer two network on Ethereum. Um, and so you know, like Uniswap, um, like a lot of the DEXs, uh, a user is just transacting against these right. contracts. you know, they self-custody, they have uh, signing keys and you know, all of the things that you sort of associate with uh, with you know DeFi trading. And this is this is an ERC twenty token, right? The uh, so some of them are ERC20s, um, some of them are uh, positions that are held in a contract. So they're not actually tokenized. So the perps themselves, you have a position, but um, the position is maintained in the contract. It's not actually tokenized. You can't transfer it out or move it around or use it as collateral or anything like that.
0: D- does the absence of KYC uh, present, in your view, a risk uh, to the protocol itself? Uh, I-, I know that we are in this environment right now of obviously increased uh, surveillance, increased uh, um, Regulatory sort of oversight and activity uh, right now. How do you think about that? How do you think about the risks, and how do you think about the ethos of
1: the space? So you know, there's there's the contracts, and then there are um, the front ends, I guess, right? And and they're you know kind of distinct things. Right. Uh, so you know, the contracts themselves, they're deployed, they're managed by governance. Um, so Synthetics has uh, you know a fairly robust decentralized governance framework. Um, you know, it's split into, uh, different components. So, you know, the treasury, um, parameterization, uh, you know, grants and various other things are kind of separated out. Um, Are
0: are these the the three distinct DAOs that you're referring to?
1: Yeah. They're, they're like a, a council that's, um, elected by token holders, essentially. Um, you know, all this stuff happens on chain, um, and, you know, allows token holders to govern, uh, the protocol. So at a protocol level, um, you know, there is. I guess not much that um, that you know could be done to stop the protocol. It, it, you know it's just this set of contracts that that run on the blockchain. Right. Um, then, when you start considering the front end, um, those front ends are hosted in various different places. So um some of them are hosted centrally. Um, there's some front ends that are running on uh, decentralized networks. And so you have this range of front ends. And you know for the front ends, it really comes down to uh, I guess their um, you know risk tolerance. Um, so all of these different interfaces need to make decisions around, you know, what uh, what they want to implement in terms of KYC, um, geoblocking, things like that. Um, but the contracts are pretty agnostic to that. You know, anyone who turns up that has, uh, you know, uh, tokens on Ethereum or tokens on Optimism uh, can interact with them.
0: So, so you think of it as sort of that's the layer at which you have anonymity and credible neutrality, uh, and then on top of that, the front end, uh, the ability to access it is where you see uh, the potential for the the regulatory component to exist
1: yeah I, I think you know the um, the fact that front ends are still not as decentralized they're more distributed so you know you have multiple different front ends um, but the front ends themselves uh, need to run on I guess more traditional infrastructure. That's changing um, and you know we have uh, we have some better tooling to run front ends on uh, more decentralized infrastructure but that's definitely the the break point for me. You've got the contracts on one side. And then you got the interfaces on the other, and and you know they uh, they have sort of different properties and and different considerations. Ken, are you are you talking to
0: regulators about this? Are you talking to legal, regulatory, and compliance folks about this? What's the feedback that you're getting uh,
1: when you talk to lawyers about this? So, I think the reality is that we've been operating in an environment that is fairly uncertain for a long time, um, and you know it's unclear um, what the d5 version, if you will, of um, each of the TradFi components is, you know, um, is the contract on Ethereum, the exchange, you know, is uh, self custodying um, you know, different to having a custodian? In a in a TradFi environment, you know what what where's the break point there? Um, is an exchange uh, that you know is a full stack exchange, so it operates the contracts and is a custodian and you know has front ends. Is that something um, you know that is doesn't have sort of uh, a, a, I guess analog in the TradFi world, right? right. Where the things are typically separated out. Um, and and the reality is there's just a lot of uncertainty. Um, so I think to operate in DeFi today. Um, you're sort of forced into uh, a situation where you need to make the best guess as to what the um, you know ideal approach is. Um, but I think there's also an ideological component, which is that you know regulators, um the outcome that they want is fair and transparent markets. I think that's that's you know um I think there's some people that you know question some of the motivations uh, around regulations at times. but my personal view is that I think most regulators are well-meaning. They just want open, transparent markets that are fair. That's it. Um, And in TradFi, that takes a lot of work because there's a lot of places where people can um, cut corners or do things that um, are maybe not in the best interests of their counterparties or whatever. And so you really need a lot of oversight. You need to be able to inspect what people are doing. Um, You've got a lot of uh, opacity in, in different systems. In DeFi,
0: you don't you have... This. Let me just ask you this, though. and in, in terms of this idea that all they want is open and transparent markets, I mean, I think that that's certainly one of the concerns. But another thing that we hear coming up uh, is AML KYC uh, and the ability to geofence out uh, actors from certain states. Now, that's just the framework that they have to it. Uh, and it seems as though it's something that they are interested in pursuing rather vigorously. And it's it's interesting to see these sort of two worlds colliding and to see how this gets negotiated out because it's a it's a very distinct difference between the way uh, the traditional financial services system works and the way defi works.
1: yeah that's that's a very fair point. um and so i think you know obviously different regulators have different approaches right um and you know i would i would still argue that um, wanting to geofence for example um, falls into the category of wanting fair and transparent markets mm-hmm. because if you are um, you know if you allow um, people to come from a jurisdiction uh, where there are less regulations, you have less oversight, and interact with people in a jurisdiction where you have high oversight, then you create this uh, sort of distinction, right? Where they can maybe outcompete a regulated entity. And I think from a regulatory perspective, that's very problematic, right? Now, uh, then you've got other things like counterterrorism, financing, and you know, uh, right. and money laundering issues, and you know, I think that's a distinct set of issues. But you know, when it comes to Uh, Geofencing and saying, well, if you're going to operate in this uh, more lax regulatory environment, we don't want you interacting with the people in our regulatory environment. We want to, you know wall that off right and keep you out well, um, well some of it think- some of it's
0: more than lax regulatory environment some of it is uh states that have been sanctioned uh through OFAC regulation here in the United States and you know the agreements that exist across uh the western world more broadly so it's it's not simply a question of regulatory arbitrage uh, in many cases it's uh it's about it's about OFAC compliance and and not funding states uh that uh, the th- authorities in the west believe uh are
1: involved in things that they don't want money flows going to for sure. And, and you know, I, I put that again into the category of like sanctions, right? You right, know, so right. sanctions against uh, various parties being able to participate. Um, typically, that works the other way, right? Like, you know, it's uh, you don't want a sanctioned entity interacting with, uh, you know, a US bank, for example, right. right? They're, you know, they're like, well, we, you know, we're regulating the banks and we say, you know, banks, we don't want you interacting there. It's, I, I would say, you know less likely that the concern is, you know, an Iranian uh, derivatives exchange that they're trying to stop from you know interacting with U.S. Uh, persons, right? It's you know more likely that it's going to be some you know entity that's operating out of you know the Bahamas or something like that, and they're saying, well, you know, we're concerned about the oversight in that region, and we don't want an exchange, or we don't want some you know we don't want counterparties there operating you know uh, with our citizens. So I think there's a number of different considerations, right? Um, right. But you know when when you focus on, we don't want uh, our citizens in our jurisdiction to, uh, you know, interact with a less regulated entity. Um, you know, DeFi kind of avoids that a little bit, right? Because you know, if it's a if it's something running on the blockchain, um, you can see the rules. It's transparent. It doesn't need the same level of oversight. But the unfortunate thing I think is that there's like a, a fundamental assumption, I suppose, um, of regardless of how the system is constructed, we want the same level of oversight. And I think in DeFi, we say, you know, there is a distinction here, right? Like you don't need the same level of oversight of Uniswap as you do of Goldman Sachs. They just are distinct types of entities, right, that are interacting with people. Yeah, I mean I guess we'll see
0: ultimately regulators get to make those determinations and we'll we'll see how that shakes out. I want to talk a little bit more about your vision for the future here, big picture. Uh, I know that your uh, plan is to take on some of the centralized exchanges. Talk a little bit about how you see this uh, in terms of your vision for what the future will look like uh, in both the DeFi space uh, as well as the interaction with traditional assets.
1: So, you know, for the for the longest time I think it's it's been the case within crypto that um, the vast majority of people interacting with crypto are doing it with centralized entities, right? right. Uh, you know, which is just a problematic situation. Um, but it's easy. Easier- and, and,
0: and by the way, we should say, we saw, we saw some of that with the collapse of FTX and precisely yeah.
1: the points you're speaking to. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and there, there's a significant counterparty risk, right? Like my view is that something like FTX feels more to me like Goldman Sachs, right? It does need regulatory oversight, right? If you have people that have, um, you know, counterparty risk, um, and are custodying assets and, you know, have minimal oversight. That's the problem, right? Like that's something that I think needs to be solved. Whereas if you have something that's on chain, it's self custody, um, you know, that ideally it needs less regulatory oversight because everyone can inspect it and see that it's operating as, as expected. Um, and so I, my sense is that, um, you know, when it comes to, crypto you've got this like ethos of decentralization and you know self-custody and everything and yet you know the vast majority of crypto is held with custodians and you know is subject to this counterparty risk and we've been trying to play catch up with this for you know more than a decade right Um, but it's always easier to build uh, a centralized, you know, database and store people's assets in that, right? Than it is to build decentralized infrastructure, right? The decentralized infrastructure has been playing catch up. I think in the last cycle we've finally caught up, where you know we we're close to feature parity. Um, so you know we can close to feature link.
0: parity with the centralized exchanges
1: with centralized exchanges and, and other like CFI entities, you know, whether it's a CFI lending um, platform, you know, where you 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 know, hand over your Bitcoin and, and you know, they uh, essentially lend it out or you know, whatever the um, category is. I think, you know, we've got robust DeFi infrastructure that can compete where I still think we're lagging is on the user experience. So, you know, if uh, if a user who was coming into space for the first time in 2024 turns up and they've got two options. They can go to Bob and they can create an account with a username, email, password, um, and you know, deposit some fiat and buy some tokens and start trading. Um, or someone can explain to them how to download, you know, Metamask plugin for their browser, create a private key, save their, you know, seed phrase, and and you know, write it down on. 24 sheets of paper and bury it in their backyard, and you know do all of these additional steps, right? Um, and you know most likely not do that and you know lose their money and you know all of all of the friction that we have right now um, for a new user coming in. Then all things being equal, the vast majority of users are going to flow down that centralized pipeline, right? right. They're going to go to buy- because it's just easier, right? Um, and you know there's also a forcing function here, which is the person that they're probably relying on. Um, who you know is helping them to understand crypto for the first time is going to try and optimize for the least, Likelihood of that person coming back and asking more questions, right? So and yep. you know I've done this myself, where I'm like, uh, you know, someone's like, hey, I want to do. I'm like, you know what? Honestly, go on to Binance. Like it's easy. Just sign. You just want to buy one Bitcoin? Like just go to Binance, right? right? I'm
0: not. Otherwise, explain. otherwise you you get drafted into uh, tech support with the MetaMask. Now company. you're tech support,
1: right? Forever, right? You know, and and you got to educate them. And so I do think that that you know creates this uh, this issue, right? And so what was missing last cycle was. Uh, uh, Self custody or you know or non custodial trustless solutions that were as easy to use um, and we're not hundred percent there right we're close but we're not hundred percent there um, but with a few compromises I think we can get there um, and so you know my view is that because we now have that feature parity on the back end, the actual infrastructure and, and you know, all of the tooling and everything is there, um, it's sort of beholden on us to now come and meet the user where they live and right. really make it easy to onboard into DeFi as it is into CFI or into you know, TradFi or whatever. Um, and, that's what, and, so and that's what you guys are working on now with V3. Um, that, so what, that's what I'm working on with Infinex. Um, so Infinex is another front end. Right, it's another uh, it's another gateway, if you will, um, into synthetics. Um, right. But rather than be uh, you know driven by Metamask and signing keys and private keys, public keys, all of that stuff, um, you just use a username and password to I sign see. up. And and so it's really trying to bridge that gap, make it as easy as possible, so that you know I can confidently say to my mother or you know um, my grandmother, if you want to go and you know buy some ether, you can actually go and do this. And you can buy some ether and i'm confident they're going to be able to do it create that username password sign up and you know they're not going to lose their funds they're not going to be uh you know subject to counterparty risk
0: well this is one of the things that's so interesting about the web3 world is the stackability the composability of these different attributes where you can build front ends uh and on different layers uh on top beneath below above uh different protocols it's really fascinating listen kane i know i would be remiss my viewers and listeners would yell at me if I didn't ask them about the price of the token. Uh, if we take a look at the SNX token, all uh, duration max chart, uh, it is not a pretty one. Talk a little bit about what we see there on that chart.
1: Well, you know, there's uh, there's a very famous personality on uh, on Twitter that has been talking for a long time about this three year uh, DeFi bear market, um, you know, which started back in uh, in you know like 2021, right? And we're a couple of years into that. And I think that, you know, the reality is that the uh, sort of optimism about what DeFi would be able to deliver um, got ahead of the actual tech. And it's taken us a couple of years to catch up. And so I think if you look over, you know, the last say six months, um, you know, a lot of different DeFi protocols that were around, um, you know, in 2017, 2018 have gotten to this point where I think that they are actually competitive uh, with, you know, their their CFI competitors, um, which has just not been a thing that we could really claim um, right. historically. And so, you know, uh, the next step in my mind is we've got a bunch of people in crypto that are still here um, and being able to sort of credibly uh, capture that audience to within DeFi and, and, you know, get them off centralized exchanges is the first step. And if we can do that, then the next wave of people that come in, you know, whenever that happens, um you know 2024 2025 um i think we've got a decent chance of not having them get siphoned off into you know frauds and ponzi schemes and things like that we can actually keep them in defi where you know ideally it's much safer and and you know the transparency is there
0: well, we've seen all kinds of uh, frauds and Ponzi schemes in traditional uh, centralized exchanges, different sets of risks, I guess, perhaps uh, over on the uh, DeFi side, but really spectacularly interesting bleeding edge stuff that you guys are working on high potential opportunities, in my view, at least very high risk right now. This is stuff that's uh, definitely in front of the curve. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave us with,
1: Kate. Um, yeah, I think uh, ultimately, what it comes down to is um, you know we are trying to build this new financial infrastructure. Um, you know, we believe that uh, these decentralized technologies are new enabling technologies. They lower barriers to entry for people to participate in finance, and that you know the um, the infrastructure and tooling we're building is going to drive finance in the next you know decade or two decades. Um, but we're still very early and, you know, we're still working out some of the kinks, but I think eventually, it, you know, like the web, it's just a better technology for running finance. Um, you know, once we can get to some level of, uh, of cut through, I think that that will become you know, much more obvious. Kane
0: Warwick, very interesting stuff. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks, Ash. That's it for today. Make sure to check out our website, realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. It's free to sign up for our crypto content. Tomorrow, we'll be joined by Joe Zhao for macro and crypto conversation. You don't want to miss it. See you live at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great day. Rick Rule. Rick Rule is a favorite of the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet Rick and get a masterclass from the master himself, you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida July 23 to 27. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members and uranium pros. Just head over to realvision.com rick for tickets. That's realvision.com rick.